It's no secret that real estate is one of the best investment vehicles out there. But how can we determine which strategies will best align with our financial ambitions? Well, you've come to the right spot. Whether you're an active real estate entrepreneur, a passive investor, or looking to get into real estate investing, our goal is to provide investors with the insights and strategies for building our portfolios all while protecting our capital. I'm Daniel Nichols, and this is the Two Smart Assets Real Estate Investing Podcast. Are you looking to grow your real estate investing business? Fortune Cribs can help. Fortune Cribs helps investors buy short-term rentals in select markets around the country for as little as 10% down with cash on cash returns in the 20 to 30% range. Fortune Cribs will design, furnish, and manage all the day-to-day operations, making your experience truly hands-off. And it doesn't matter where you're at in your real estate investing journey, whether you're trying to get your first deal or scale your portfolio, Fortune Cribs can help. So if you want to take the next step, go to fortunecribs.com and book your free consultation to see how Fortune Cribs can best help you. Once again, that's fortunecribs.com. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Daniel Nichols, accompanied by our guest for the week, Jacob Vanderslice. And today we are the two smart assets. For those not yet familiar with Jacob, he is principal of Van West Partners, a Denver-based real estate investment firm focusing on the acquisition and management of self-storage centers and other opportunistic real estate throughout the United States. Van West has a has an established track record with over $195 million in real estate assets. Jacob and his partner's success is driven by a commitment to delivering an expertly executed, adaptable strategy with an institutional investment approach. Jacob, it's great to see you, man. Welcome to the show. Danny, thanks for having us on. Man, super excited to speak with you today. Love the topic we're going to get into, self-storage. We're going to dive into that. Uh, before we get into you know all the, the nitty-gritty and the details, we like to kick the show off by hearing more about you, Jacob. So tell us more about your background, your story, and how you got today how you got to where you are today in your investing career. All right. Yeah, we uh, we got started investing in real estate full-time in about 2006. We're based out of Denver. And for most of our careers, we did single-family fix and flips and rentals. We did a bunch of them uh, all over the country, mainly the Denver Front Range. Um, and then we started doing commercial real estate in 13 and 14, uh, repositioning old warehouses around Denver into multi-tenant experience-based retail, breweries, restaurants, uses like that. We've sold some of those, held on to others. Um, and then we got in the self-storage business in 2015, and we started off with a few ground-up development projects, and then we kind of kept expanding into the Midwest. We did a bunch of deals in Milwaukee. Um, coincidentally, as we record this podcast, we're actually selling that portfolio today um, after holding it for you know on a blended basis since about 2017. So we're excited about that. Um, and then uh, really, after we put that t- the portfolio together, that was a programmatic JV with some high net worth guys and some institutional capital. Uh, we started doing our direct to investor single asset syndications thereafter. And then uh, we launched our first storage fund in 2019. And we closed that fund in uh, August of 20. Then we launched our second fund uh, January of 21. We closed that fund out in Q1 of this year. And we're launching fund three uh, very shortly. And we've got a few development syndications going as well. So we're, we're mainly focused on self-storage. We're entrepreneurial. We do some other little things on the side like town-owned development and um, some kind of infill uh, repositions, but by and large, we're, we're self-storage guys. Love to hear it, man. It sounds like you guys have been on, on a real tear. And, you know, if you're doing anything in the in the Denver area uh, successfully, you know, that's a great market to be in. You know, I know you guys are uh, other places as well, but uh, love to hear that. So I want to take a look back, you know, 2015, you guys said you made that transition, kind of started getting into self-storage, right? Um, you know, 
what were some of the reasons to make that transition? You're doing some other things before that, but did you hit, recognize an opportunity in the market for self-storage or had your investing thesis changed completely and you guys just made the shift or what, what were some of those reasons? Well, like anything else, it wasn't so much, all right, let's become a self-storage shop and let's go do that. It was more, oh, let's go. We've heard good things about self-storage. Let's, let's go do a deal. Um, it, was, it was just kind of a organic shift, trying it out, see how it goes. Um, we, we found a development site in downtown Denver and we roadshowed it uh, to a number of our investors and they're all like, uh, huh, that seems like a good deal. And they wouldn't do it with us. And the reason they wouldn't is no one wants to do your first asset class for your first time. It doesn't matter that we had done, um, you know, 1100 fix and flips, whatever the number was, it was a lot. Like you guys haven't done storage before, so uh, we're going to take a pass. But one shop we did bring it to said, yeah, we will do this with you guys, but we want to do it more programmatically. Um, so we pulled the trigger with them and built a bunch of deals together and bought some and we're selling them all today. Uh, but the reason we looked at storage at the time was we had studied it for a while and it's historically been very recession resistant. It's predictable, uh, durable income streams were really attractive to us. And we thought the market was getting a little bit hot back then. And we mm. thought we were overdue for a downturn. We were very wrong because it kept going and kept going and somehow it keeps going. Well, you know, verdict's out on that. We'll see. Um, but but uh, yeah, we liked, we liked the operational aspect of it, the scale, uh, the fact it's repeatable. So that's how we got into it. Our first round of deals went well and we just kind of kept going. By the way, I want to say uh, congratulations on the the upcoming exit. You know, I think that's uh, pretty fantastic. So congratulations on that. The one thing I do want to uh, jump on there, kind of what you're talking about, you know, um, you saw the advantages of being in self-storage, a lot of great reasons to be in self-storage, you know, as a, as an, as an operator and also even as a passive investor, right. There's a lot of benefits. Um, but in terms of, you know, that growth curve, you know, you guys kind of looked in that market into self-storage for a while, you made that jump. Uh, and then, you know, you mentioned a lot of, nobody wants to invest with their, you know, with a team when they're on their first, you know, try in a certain niche, right? How was that growth curve for you guys going into self-storage? Was it kind of a lot of trial and error or was it pretty smooth as you guys went into it since you've already had a lot of experience in other? Uh, there, in there, other was, there was, there was, uh, you know, we've, we've learned the most by failing. Uh, we remember the failures like they were yesterday and, you know, the successes just, you seem to forget about them to a degree. Um, some of the failure points as we got into self-storage, uh, one was we weren't self-managing. And the reason we weren't self-managing is we didn't know how to. We didn't have a management company. So we outsourced our management to some of the national REITs. And uh, they know what they're doing. But inherently, a third party's interest is not aligned with yours, right? They're taking a fee. They're not an owner. Um, so after the honeymoon was over, we realized that our expense loads were bloated. Our revenue management wasn't that efficient. There's a lot of re um, <clears throat> ancillary revenue streams in storage that some of the third party REITs keep and don't share with ownership. So after some number of years, we started, we formed our own management platform and started slowly taking back some of the deals. And we found we had an immediate impact uh, on our bottom line just by caring more and watching our expense loads, like rebidding snow removal contracts and landscaping contracts and having a human touch on revenue management and increasing rates in the summer more aggressively than we are in the winter. Um, so yeah, one, one big mistake was just um, not understanding the operational aspect of it but you learn by owning and then you learn by operating. And we learned a lot over the years and uh, everything we bought in the last four years, we've uh, self-managed and everything we're gonna buy for the foreseeable future, we're gonna manage ourselves. And that's really where the, the value is created in the management. Yeah, love to hear that. Actually, I was on your website earlier this week and one of the, the main things that I noticed was uh, 
you know, one of your key competitive advantages was being, you know, an owner operator. Right. And that's kind of, I think what you're talking about now. Uh, so I think that's, that's, that's awesome. Love to hear that. Uh, the one thing I do want to dive into just so our listeners are on the same page, you mentioned, uh, ancillary income streams, right? Obviously a lot of people are, um, they're familiar with, you know, kind of getting the rent on, um, a self-storage, right? Somebody pay you know, a lot of our listeners probably have self-storage units. That they rent themselves. Right. So people are familiar with those type of the type of income you're getting from that. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other ancillary income streams that kind of maybe you guys implement in your business? Yeah. Yeah. There's several. Um, one big one is tenant insurance. So uh, believe it or not, self-storage operators are not responsible per their leases for their customers' contents. So if there's a fire theft or flood, it's, it's not our issue. So we either require our customers to present proof of coverage on their homeowner's policy or buy a protection plan from us. We cover their contents up to like five or 10 grand based on the unit type. And we'll sell them these protection plans for 10 to $15 a month. We pay our carrier two bucks a month in premium per unit. So to make the numbers around, let's say it's $10 a month in net income. Now that's not very much, obviously 10 bucks doesn't, doesn't do much for anybody. But if you have a 700 unit facility and you get 65% of your customers to buy your protection plan, and then you annualize that number and you put a cap rate on it, you've created a lot of value just by slinging a $10 plan to somebody. So that's our biggest ancillary revenue stream. The other ones are late fees, which is obvious. If you pay late, you get a fee. Sure. Um, other fees are one-time administrative fees when you move in. So if you move in, we'll charge you a one-time fee of $25 to $50, depending on the facility location. And then uh, a smaller component of our revenue, but still is meaningful, are um, like boxes and tape. Um, so big margin on those. So the sum of all of those fees equates to about 8% of our top line revenue. So it's a it's a big number. And again, you layer in those ancillary revenue streams, you put a cap rate on it, you've gotten a lot of value. Yep, absolutely. That's that's definitely significant. I love to hear that. Thanks for you know going into detail about that. I know that's interesting to me personally. And I know a lot of our listeners will take that as well. So we kind of want to shift a little bit, you know. Um Many of our investors, the listeners, they're they're aware that self storage has been extremely hot recently, right? I know you guys are aware of that as well. Um, you know, and eventually we're going to dive into kind of what your opinion is on how this is, you know, what we're looking like in the market, how it's going forward. But before we do that, can you talk about kind of like the performance of self storage industry over the past maybe let's say I don't know a few years and any major takeaways uh, you've had from your experience? Yeah. Um, again, it's recession resistant. We actually just did a webinar kind of covering a few of these topics a few days oh, ago. Um, self-storage responds very well in times of disruption. So it had positive net returns during the financial crisis, and it was the best real estate performing asset class during the pandemic. Maybe we're still in the pandemic, maybe we're not, but it did very well in 2020 and especially 2021. Um, REITs and us uh, and other operators we know are reporting just record same store sales. Um, our Q1 to Q1 monthly revenue is up 29% from 21 to 22 and our Q1 to Q1 net operating income uh, over the same period is up 48%. So there's increased consumer demand. Um, There's just been, it's been a good industry to be in the last couple of years. And frankly, a lot longer than that. A couple of things we're concerned with, uh, cap rates are compressing and premiums on stabilized self-storage facilities feel like they're untenable. Like we don't, we don't understand how some people are paying the prices they are. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we bid on a portfolio about a month ago for I think 25 million. And we stretched on that number. We were still reasonable in our underwriting, but it was a stretch number. And that portfolio traded for 32. Wow. That, that's a, that's a big, big gap. 
So what we're expecting to see at some point that we're not seeing yet is interest rates go up cap rates have to eventually go up. You can't have an environment where rates keep going up and cap rates keep compressing, but that's the environment we're in right now, at least in self-storage. And we think a large large reason behind that is there is so much capital that wants to be in the space. The demand is so strong that um, interest rates are not affecting cap rates yet. Eventually that's gonna shift, I think, but that's something we're watching for pretty carefully. Um, deal flow is very challenging right now. A lot of people wanna buy the same stuff that we do. Um, I think uh, just over 70% of our acquisitions are sourced off market through broker relationships, direct to seller relationships. If it's a deal that's widely marketed with a professional brokerage outfit, we cannot compete, not even close. There's just too much money out there that will take a lower yield and a lower total return than we're willing to. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. I know, especially depending on which market you, you know, you're in uh, a lot of competition out there right now. So I do want to dive into that for just a second. I know you mentioned a few earlier. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the type of market you're looking to get into where, you know, acquiring assets I know you've done in the past, but at the same time, are you looking for those big, you know, heavy hitter markets or you're looking at more secondary tertiary type markets? More secondary and tertiary. We'll look at deals in primary markets, but generally the yields are too compressed to make sense. Um, we have a lot of deals in the Midwest and the Southeast. Those have been good markets to us. We have a bunch of deals in the Florida Panhandle between Pensacola and Panama City, deals in North Carolina. Um, I would say we're a little more market agnostic. Um, there are certain markets we, we don't prefer to go to, like the Northeast. Sorry if you're up there, but you know, <laughs> New York's a tough environment. Um, California is a bit tough to get stuff done in, but we like these kind of just good nuts and bolts real estate markets. Um, as it relates to self-storage specifically, we underwrite supply ratios, how many square feet per capita are in the one, three and five mile trade radius. Self-storage is very supply sensitive. Um, we also look at competition. What are, what are competitor rates on 10 by 10s, uh, 10 by 20s? And we analyze those rates um, on a potential acquisition we're going to buy. Uh, that are in the market against the in-place rates on the acquisition. So a lot of times we'll see deals that we buy that are really full. And in self-storage, you're not a hero if you're full. It means your rates are too low. So your ideal occupancy should be high 80s, low 90s. That gives you a chance to kind of turn over units, raise rates over time. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, not, um, we're not targeting any specific markets. We like to get geographic concentration in places we're already in. Um, but we'll we'll go to a new town, uh, a new state if if we, if we find a deal that makes sense. Love to hear it, man. So you know, a little bit ago, you talked a little bit uh, some about the risks you're seeing in the market right now. So have you guys? Uh, how are you guys adjusting to those risks that you're seeing? Are you are you adjusting kind of your your thesis and what you're doing, or is there anything you've changed uh, going going forward from here? Well, one specific thing that we're uh, concerned about, especially as we refinance properties in three to five years, are interest rates. So what is the correct takeout interest rate to carry in your model? Mm. And the answer is nobody knows, but it's certainly <laughs> higher uh, than it used to be last year. So we're, we're, we're definitely stress testing our deals with higher rates, more so than we were before on, a, on takeout financing. Um, risks out there in general that we're seeing, um, there's a lot of, um, a lot of decks and, and um, OMs that we see from other syndications and funds that I think can possibly give a false impression of how a deal is going to go. But said otherwise, it's really easy to play IRR games, right? Sure. So let, let, let's say you, um, you you buy a storage deal, you show really aggressive revenue growth in the first couple of years, then you show a year two refinance that returns half the investor equity. Then on year four, you show a low cap rate exit in a tertiary market. Uh, you're going to show a pretty good return. 
But if any one of those things don't happen, it's going to be materially different. Um, so I think a lot of the buyers out there that are paying more than we are, are sort of playing games in their models. And maybe those games don't, maybe they're not games, maybe, maybe it actually happens. But we don't want to rely on those things to happen to make our deals pencil. So I think some of the prices that have been paid on some deals we've seen in the last year, those, those buyers could have some pain if things don't go perfectly. And they're probably not going to go perfectly. Yeah, it's very rare that everything goes uh, exactly to plan, right? So, uh, well, it, it actually has never happened to us. We have, <laughs> things have never ever gone exactly to plan. It either goes better or worse, but it never goes exactly to plan. Yep, I think that's pretty common. And I love to hear that you guys are being conservative too. I think, uh, you know, as a passive investor myself, that's exactly what I'm here. My sponsors say it, right? You know, and I'd like to see that in the numbers as well. So I appreciate you going to that level of detail. And conservatism is a it's a fine line to walk, right? Do you, do you want to be conservative? Or do you want to price yourself out of deals, right? So if you're too conservative, you won't buy anything, right? But if you're too aggressive, uh, you're making assumptions you may not be able to deliver on. So finding that fine line is uh, is the art and the science in this game, for sure. So, so you know, just diving into that for just a second, we don't have to get into too much detail. But, you know, how do you guys do that? So I'm, I'm just kind of trying to walk myself through that, you know, but you're trying to be, like you said, conservative, but you're still trying to take down deals, right? But it's still competitive price, you're getting priced out or whatever. How are you guys walking that line? Well, it's a wide funnel. First of all, uh, we we don't get many of the deals that we send LOIs on, but a couple examples generally. So we've got a um, got a development syndication that we're working on in Longmont. Um, the deal closes in July. It's uh, roughly fifteen million dollars in total project cost. So we're we're building and stabilizing to about a seven point six percent yield on cost. And that deal today, stabilized, class A product, well-located, is probably trading in a four cap, somewhere in there, possibly less. Uh, the portfolio we're, sell- we're selling today is trading a, on a T6 three cap, if you can believe that. So just remarkable. Yeah. So we are underwriting a 5.5% cap rate exit on year five. So we try to add in, we don't try, we add in a lot of cushion on our exit cap um, five years down the road compared to what it would be today. We also try to be conservative on our revenue assumptions. So right now in the submarket, current rents are about 15% less than our targeted stabilized rents three to five years from now. So if you're conservative on the revenue side, conservative on the cap rate exit side, your stabilized yield on cost, that should be substantially higher than market cap rates today. And if you're also conservative on your leverage, and, and we believe conservative leverage is no greater than 70%, of cost, not value, but cost. Right. Um, we're levering this one at 64% on cost. Wow. We think those three factors are going to protect us for any kind of unforeseen, either on the hard cost side, the revenue side, uh, or the exit cap side. That's a quick example of kind of how we look at uh, you know stabilized yield on costs, exit cap rates, and, and leverage. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, going to that level of detail. It really paints a picture and, you know, kind of helps mom, at least me understand, you know, kind of what that what that looks like. So I appreciate that. Uh, one thing I did want to talk about today is a little bit of a shift, but uh, you guys, you know, you guys, or you said you've done some single uh, asset syndication in the past. You're still doing some of that, but now you've started a fund over the last few years, actually two funds now, if I heard that correctly. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about more uh, about, you know, why you moved into the fund structure and what are the benefits um, for you guys and for passive investors as well? Yeah, we're, we're launching Fund 3 very soon, uh, in the next week or so. And the reason we're doing our development deals outside the fund is the fund is only going to buy existing storage facilities. It's going to buy lease up, CEO acquisitions, value add, you name it. But development is too different 
Uh, I think sure. to put into a fund, some people don't want development exposure and development's risky, right? It's tough to quantify. There's no income for a long time. Um, so we do syndications and funds, but one of the reasons that we generally gravitate towards doing most of our deals in funds is the geographic and cash flow diversification that a multi-property asset base offers versus one deal. Um, some investors like to get to know the assets they're investing in, which is why they invest in single asset syndications. They like to kind of street view it, you know, understand the neighborhood, what's happening. Um, but if that deal doesn't go well that they're in, there's no alternative revenue streams to kind of shore it up. So in, in fund two, for example, inevitably every quarter, uh, one of our deals fa uh, falls behind forecasts in some metric, whether it's revenue, NOI, operating expenses, um, but then it's balanced out by the other deals that are either on or ahead of forecast. So when you invest in a fund, whether it's with us or somebody else, um, if the sponsor does a good, good job constructing their portfolio, you're diversified across many geographies and many different asset types. Uh, it's all self-storage, but some are you know, single-story drive-ups, some are multi-story climate control, just kind of depends on the deal. But I think funds offer greater diversification. But with that being said, they offer less opportunity for LPs to kind of pick and choose where they want to be. So if we had an investor call us up and say, uh, I don't want to be in Michigan, but we're buying a deal in Michigan, we would certainly consider their opinion and try to understand why. But, you know, they legally, they couldn't tell us you can't buy this deal in Michigan. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you uh, explaining that. So, you know, a lot of our investors, they're, they're familiar with the single asset uh, syndication. And I think there's a lot of benefits, like you're just saying to the to the fund model, right? Uh, a lot of benefits there. And so I do have a, a couple of questions uh, regarding the, the fund model, right? So with a single asset syndication, most of us are familiar with, you get, you know, three to five year hold period, there's some sort of projected hold period, right? And then yep. there's a pref and an equity split at some point. And then eventually somewhere down the road at that three, somewhere between three or five years, there's a a capital event and an exit of some sort for the passive investor. So with the fund, is there, is it pretty much something very similar to a single asset syndication or does it look different? Well, on our, on our development deals, which are single asset syndications, we underwrite a five-year hold on those. Uh, on our fund deals, we underwrite a seven-year hold. Now, neither of those vehicles require us to sell on year five or sell on year seven. Um, it's more, I don't want to say it's open-ended, but if the market, let's say we get to year seven in our fund and we're making great cash flow distributions, everything's going well, but for whatever reason, cap rates have gone up and values have gone down. We don't want to be forced to sell into an environment that's not good to sell into. Sure. So our, our target is first of all, cash flow and all these. Uh, but secondly, we endeavor to return investor capital as quickly as we can. And that doesn't always necessarily come from a sale. That could come from distributions and excess of preferred return. And that could also come from a refinance. So on, on fund one, for example, we refied that in January of this year. We returned 50% of our investor capital accounts and we increased historic gross dollar distributions. So you got half your money back. You were getting whatever you were before. Now you're getting more per year. So we're going to hold on to those for a while. Um, we, we generally uh, don't like selling. Selling creates taxes. It creates drag time on your capital. You have to replace it with something else. You have to take a new round of risk. Um, we like holding for the medium to long term. But that being said, there's always a time and a place to sell. And uh, if someone comes along with an offer that's hard to say no to, it's something you should consider. Um, but our, our thesis in wealth creation and real estate is cash flow. And you don't grow your cash flow by trading. 
Yep. I think yeah, that's a, you're spot on there. And that's a great point to bring up. In fact, you know, I've had conversations, uh, a number of conversations with investors in the past week or two, and I hear more and more, I'm hearing that uh, they want a longer hold. Cause you know, some of these, you know, if you're in a single asset syndication, whether it be self-storage or multifamily or something else, right. Uh, some of these guys, you know, you get in a deal, you could be out two years, you know, I've seen, a, seen a lot of that recently. So uh, more and more I'm hearing, you know, from investors like, Hey, we want something longer, you know, so we're not, you know, having to reinvest that and have that capital event, the tax event and all that stuff. So I think that's fantastic. Love to hear so that. One quick example on that same day, and then we can go, we can move on. Uh, sure. One of our LPs invested in a multifamily syndication. And the syndicator told him it would be a seven-year hold and this IRR, this PREF, whatever. Uh, he said, great. He deployed his capital. He was getting a 10% cash-on-cash return, which he was very happy with. And instead of selling in seven years, the, the sponsor sold it in like a year and a half. And they sold it. And he was really upset. And the sponsor was like, why are you upset? We gave you a 40% IRR. Yeah, you did give you a 40% IRR, but my multiple was lower than you told me it would be. Now I have to pay taxes and I can't easily redeploy my capital to get a 10% cash on cash return. So he's not going to work with that sponsor again. So that's an example of why people don't necessarily want their money back. They want it working for them. They want their distributions. They want their dividends. They want their K-1s uh, with depreciation. Um, round tripping something does not necessarily mean you're a hero because then people have a new problem. They have to pay taxes. They have to redeploy. You're absolutely right. And I yeah, I know a lot of people, you know, they get out of those deals and where they got to put their money somewhere else, right? That's the goal anyways, right? So um, I'm so glad you brought that up. That that makes perfect sense. Uh, one thing I do want to touch on before we get out of here, uh, Jacob, is, you know, we kind of talked on a... Uh, touched on this a little bit before the show, but it's uh, the ability to scale, you know, especially with the fund, you know, how, for you guys, you know, does the fund structure allow you to scale more quickly? And if so, what does that look like? So our, our capital raising, the, the day that our capital raising is lining up with our deal flow is going to be never. We always sure. have too much money and not enough deals or too many deals, and not enough money, but we, we raise capital as we buy deals. Uh, so it's kind of like you get your, you get your equity filled up, your deal comes, you buy it, you do it again, you do it again. Um, one of the reasons we like capital raising for a fund is it's um, you're you're presenting more of a strategy than you are a specific asset. With that being said, though, um, sometimes it's harder to raise money for a strategy versus a deal. So, mm -hmm. hey, investor, we're going to go build this deal in Longmont. Here's the location. Here's the aerial versus, hey, investor, we're going to go buy self-storage facilities across the U.S., Sometimes it's not specific enough for them, um, but the funds have served us very well. Administratively, they're simpler than syndications. You keep them open for longer. Um, people just keep funding. You keep buying new deals, creating new shares as you raise more equity. Um, so I think administratively, they're a little bit simpler. Awesome. Yeah. I know I'm going to be diving into more of the, your guys' fund structure and stuff like that, looking more into it here in the future. So I appreciate you going into that detail. Jacob, you know, it's been a great conversation. I know I've learned a ton. Before we get out of here, tell us more about Van West and anything else you guys have going on right now. Yeah, we, we've got a, a Longmont development syndication that we launched um, that's uh, actively raising capital right now that closes in July. We're calling capital down late June, signing docs now. And then we're launching fund three, uh, probably next week, which will be uh, the last week in May, first week in June. Um, Fund Three's got a couple different deals under contract: one in Orlando, Florida, some deals in the Southeast. And Fund Three is only buying existing deals uh, versus building new ones. We're targeting a fourteen to sixteen percent IRR, which is about a two point one multiple, seven year hold, um, eight pref, seventy thirty, uh, up to eighty twenty, depending on how much you invest. So pretty simple structure, no IRR hurdles or waterfalls. 
Um, that's what we have coming in the pipeline right now. Awesome. Love to hear it. What's the best way for our listeners to reach out and get in contact with you if they decide? Yeah, people can uh, people can email me at jacob at vanwestpartners.com. They can hit me on LinkedIn, Jacob Vanderslice, or go to our website, vanwestpartners.com. Awesome. We're going to make sure to put that in the show notes so people can reach out. I know I'm going to be diving more into it myself. So Jacob, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for having us on, Danny. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening to today's episode. Head over to iTunes to subscribe to the show. And while you're there, we really appreciate you leaving a rating and written review. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to hear on the show, connect with us on social media or through our website at twosmartassets.com. We look forward to speaking to each and every one of you. Talk to you soon.